Uh, two things as, as we start. Uh, the first one is we are doing many of our agape meals today. Those are where we get together in kind of family-like groups and have dinner with one another. If you are not in a gospel community and not signed up for an agape meal, but you would like to attend one, uh, let us know today and we will connect you. Uh, if you cannot make today, there's actually one gospel community doing theirs next Sunday, and we can connect you with that one as well if you'd like to attend one of those meals together. They're a lot of fun. It's a lot of family gathering, a lot of community. I just think they're a beautiful time with one another. Uh, the second thing I want to tell you is uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about this in probably the last couple months because of the election and all the things going on in our culture. Um, at Element, when, when I get up and I get to talk to you from up here, I do not talk politics as best I can. Sometimes they slip in just a tiny bit, but if I get half an hour with you, you're like, half an hour, 40 minutes, I don't know, depending on how fast I talk. Uh, I want to talk to you about Jesus, and I want to talk to you about redemption and, and what he brings into our lives. I believe that in our personal groups and gospel communities and your friendship groups, that's where you can talk and walk through a lot of those things. But it then should be based upon what we read in the scriptures. Now, next year, we are going to do a maybe six, seven-week course. I don't know how long it is yet, and we're going to call it the Gospel in Culture. And I will talk about a lot of the issues in our culture today, where they have kind of come from, how they are going into a lot of different places, and then how we then can step into our culture and make a difference. Now, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, running out and holding signs and protesting. I believe that we should vote. I believe that we should vote the way the scriptures lead us towards. But I think that life change is done one-on-one -on -one with people. And in this course, we're going to talk about how we actually speak the gospel into many of these places and how maybe we cannot, maybe we don't get overwhelmed by all the stuff that's happening, but learn how to see things through a gospel lens as we step into relationships. We're going to break you into groups throughout this and let you guys have little discussions on maybe how to do practical things in that. And we're still putting it together, all the pieces of it. And I don't want to interfere with redemption groups that are starting in January, so it'll probably be after that. But we are planning to do something and to help you and to talk through some of this stuff. So does that sound okay? Yeah. All right, I'll see 10 of you there apparently. <laughs> yeah. If you are new to Element and you don't own a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you don't have one, please, please take one home. Uh, there are not sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room, but for this series we're doing right now, they look like this. And this one has been used a lot because it's fallen apart. Uh, and these are these prayer booklets. The prayer booklets are covering 13 weeks of messages that we are doing at Element. Today is actually week nine. Um, now, as you go through this, there are sermon recaps in here, but there's not a place to take sermon notes. And what we have are these Element prayer journals. And what I always think is so funny about the prayer journals is I prayed to God to make this okay because this wasn't in the budget and then we spent it anyway. Uh, for those people on the board. Uh, anyway, uh, if, and if you would like to take notes during the message, you can write that down in here. You can write down your prayers maybe throughout this series and see what God has maybe started in the beginning and what he's done after 13 weeks. And if it's not full, you can just keep doing that for the rest of next year. You just keep filling this thing out. We'd love for you to have one. They're both free. They're on the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes with the ones that are in there. Uh, you'll get the verses we're going through. 
the announcements uh, that we talked about, really all that you need for this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 17, and it said, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would move us to a place where we would be intrigued by what you are doing in our world and the places we don't understand, that we would move to a place where we want to pray for those around us, and that we would be those ultimately who glorify you in all that we say and all that we do, and that you would be honored by our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series on prayer, our relationship with God, how to spend time with Him, uh, hopefully in a way that if you've ever had anxiety around the ideas of prayer, that can begin to decrease a little bit, and you can understand what prayer is a little bit better. Now, we have talked about what prayer is over the course of eight weeks so far, and the first week, we came up with a definition. This is the definition. Prayer is a continuing conversation that God has started through His Word and provided by His grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. This is the idea that we cannot figure out God on our own, so God has to reveal himself. And he has done that in the scriptures, and that is grace. And by understanding who he is, we can grow into a deeper relationship with him. Though the second week we talked about what prayer is not, and prayer is not making up who we want God to be and then worshiping that creation. The third week we talked about unanswered prayer, the what and the why of unanswered prayer. The fourth week we talked about real prayer, and that real prayer isn't just babbling or saying a bunch of words, hoping something sticks and God gives us something. It's about understanding that the real God is a father, and he loves us as such. And then the fifth week, Steve comes in and he talks about the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer in that understanding of God as Father. And the sixth week, he did this uh, acronym, which is Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Then the seventh week, we looked at ceaseless prayer and what that actually means. And the eighth week, we talked about praying in the Spirit and what that means. That's a whole lot. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to turn a corner. We're going to take all those things that we've learned so far and start to look at some people's prayers in the Bible and now they actually prayed with God. And we'll start to take some of those pieces of what we've talked about and I'll show you how they relate to these people's prayers and hopefully that'll help us to be a praying people as well. Now I think, I have mentioned before, that polls now show that most people in our society say they pray sometimes. Now, pollsters are very quick to add that that doesn't mean that someone's religious, as if they're afraid of that actually happening to somebody. So today, most people will say, I'm spiritual. People want a spiritual connection, but really not in a religious way. So my wife and I sometimes watch this show called Succession. It's very depressing. A couple seasons ago, there's this person on it named Holly Hunter. And the New York Times interviewed Holly Hunter, and they asked her if she was spiritual or religious. And she said, I would say I'm spiritual. Then she goes on and says this. I'm not even sure what that means. Okay. I believe in a higher energy, even if the energy is kind of Jungian or the whole thing is collective consciousness. If you were here in week one, when I talked about what prayer is, I kind of talked about what that actually meant. That may be God as far as I'm concerned. Does that make me a spiritual person? I would say yes. Am I a religious person? No. Do I go to church? No. I don't support organized religion. Now, I quote this to you because this is very typical of people today. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I like to pray. I like to pray to what I think God should should be, but I don't really want any type of religious connection. So don't tell me who or what I'm actually praying to. And it would be comical if it wasn't so sad. 
Now, the Bible, as we've looked through, real spirituality is not just believing in whatever God and whatever we want him to be. It's not trying to talk to God. It's not reaching out towards God, hoping he's there. Real spirituality is responding to the living God who has revealed himself in his word, that he has provided by his grace, that he has spoken, that he has acted historically in the world, and we can see these things. God has revealed himself in real ways. And so real spirituality is knowing God as he has come and shown himself to be through his word and his grace, not some God we want to make up in our own mind to make us feel better. And I think one of the reasons there is so much pushback today against the real God is we don't like a God who can contradict us. We don't like a God who can tell us what to do, that maybe some of our choices are not the greatest. We want to determine today who God is and then make him, her, it agree with us. Like today, how many people say, oh, I couldn't believe in a God if he did this or that or didn't agree with this or that. Only when we are willing to trust the true God will our hearts begin to change, Will we actually step into real relationship with Him and how our lives are lived out. And again, so what I want to do over the next few weeks is look at some people's prayers in the Bible and their encounters with the real and living God and how it changes them. And when we talk about this idea of real prayer, I think we will see some of the ways that people's hearts were changed here by encountering the real God. And maybe our hearts then can be changed as well. And I think it can be eye-opening. I think some of the prayers are a little shocking to some people, but it can help open us up to what real communication with God looks like. There's going to be three Old Testament examples I'm going to give you. Uh, There'll be two New Testament examples. And one of them I will give you next year all the way on Easter and look at Jesus' prayer for us in the garden. Now, these are all hopefully come together and help us to understand what real prayer and communication with God looks like. And today, I'm going to show you one of the most fascinating things, I think, in all of ancient literature. And this is a prayer that Abraham has with God. So if you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 18. If you have an element Bible, that is going to be on page 9, very easy to find, right in the front of the book. And this is where three men will come to the door of Abraham's tent. I mean, it's a tent, so it's more like a tent flap. Tents don't have doors. I get that. Okay. I don't like camping, but even I know that. Okay. And one of these men, of these three, is most likely Jesus. You know, we we call, before Jesus comes in human flesh at the incarnation, we call this a theophany. Jesus shows up in human guise, not disguise, but human guise. And in this day and age, if travelers came by, you would naturally invite them in and you would feed them. And again, during this meal, it becomes clear that one of these three men is the Lord. You can read Genesis 18, you can read the entire whole story here, but I'm going to jump very quickly to the prayer because we're going to spend a lot of time understanding what's happening here. And I want, if you want to hear my longer treatise on Genesis 18, about 10 years ago we did a series of the book of Genesis. It was 72 weeks, it's like a year and a half. We have what we call Genesis babies at Element. They were conceived and born during the Genesis series, so it was very long, <laughs> it was very long. Um, but in that, if you want to listen to it, I, I talk about uh, the Trinity, how Abraham responds, how it relates to the New Testament, and this thing called the filioque, if you even know what that means. But for us today, the three men are going to get up to leave. And Abraham starts to follow them, and a dialogue starts to ensue that will be started on God's part first. And you're going to see how Abraham prayed, how the prayer was real, and by the end of this, hopefully, how we then can pray as well. So first off, how Abraham prayed. Uh, One commentator says that Abraham's prayer is so different than ours because it starts in response to what God has done, and then it moves to this place of mission. 
that you see you move out missionally to pray for other people. And I keep saying that prayer has to start with God. And Abraham prays, and it's an opening in response to what God has first said. So Genesis 18, 17, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Who starts the dialogue? It's God. God starts the dialogue. Not Abraham's not like, are you there, God? Now, some people, when they read this, they say, that's not starting a dialogue. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seriously. But you never say that out loud unless you want somebody to ask, right? Right? If you came to me and you said, Aaron, I have this thing. I don't know if I should tell you, but should I tell you? I'm usually going to be like, yeah. Yeah, inquiring minds want to know. Now, imagine the God of the universe is like, should I tell you what I'm about to do? What are you going to say? Yeah, I'm always wanting you to burn a bush in front of my house and tell me what to do. Yes, please, tell me. What God is doing here is he's piquing Abraham's interest. So God tells Abraham he's going to go down and destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, it, Abraham's provoked here because of what God says in this interaction. And again, this is why it's important to understand that crying out to God many times is one of the first ways we start real prayer. We talked about this last week when we cry, Abba, Father. It doesn't start with us. It starts with God revealing and speaking to us. Real prayer is not reaching out to God as we imagine him to be or as we prefer God to be. I mean, if you pray to a God like you just imagine him to be, you might feel warm and fuzzy for a little bit, but it's not going to last. You know why? Because it's just you. You're praying to a God that's a projection of you. You're Holly Hunter. That's, that's who you are. It's a projection of your own spirituality. And that kind of God will never change your life because you will never grow into who he calls you to be because you're only projecting yourself. That God can't move you beyond yourself. A God we make up cannot challenge us beyond the limitations we have self-imposed upon our life because it's just us. If you want to grow, if you want to grow, then we need the God who is real, a God who can push us, a God who can contradict us, a God who has a will and a word that he has revealed to us that can cross our will, a God who can tell us things we don't like, a God who can say things that we may like, God, you are provoking me right now. Have you ever read the Bible and come across something that maybe offends you a little bit and you're like, I don't, I can't believe that's there. Now you know you have the real God. Something that's not just a projection of you and agrees with everything that you want to think. That's a God you know you didn't create, but a God who has a will and can challenge you into a pattern of life that is beyond yourself, that can grow you in ways you can't even imagine. It's a God who comes to us and speaks to us in his word. That's real spirituality. And this is why Abraham will speak in response to what God says. And there's lots of interesting things about how Abraham now understands who God is. And so he hears God's words. He doesn't like it. It starts to freak him out, but he doesn't run from God. He doesn't deny God. He starts to talk to God about it. And this prayer becomes a response to God's words. Genesis 18 verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Doesn't mean that God doesn't know. It means that God sees injustice and he verifies it with all witnesses. So Abraham is going to pray now to God. His prayer is going to be familiar and also kind of aggressive. And if you haven't heard this story, you might be like, whoo, wow, is that how I'm really supposed to pray? Oh, oh my goodness. So 
God tells Abraham his plan about Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham drew near, so he comes near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find in, at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham then continues on this line. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. And Abraham will go from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20. And then verse 32, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He, God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, one commentator writes this. It's, he says, Abraham is a man who will not take yes for an answer. <laughs> he says, every time God says, I'll give you that, Abraham says, that's not enough. I want more. And what you see, there are no these and thous and I beseech you and all that in here. This prayer is so informal that a lot of people say, this can't be how God intends for us to pray. Can it be? And what you see in Abraham, though, is he is also much more submissive and humble before the majesty of God than we are used to, than many of us are actually are. He calls himself, I am but dust and ashes. He keeps saying, don't be angry, don't be angry. Why? Because there is some trepidation there. He knows that God has come to him. He knows who God has revealed himself to be, but he still knows God is the king of the universe. And so there's a little bit of respect there for the majesty of God. So there's some fear. There are some extremes to Abraham here. Abraham knows he is far more aware of his own unworthiness and his weakness than most modern people are, but he is also far more adventurous in his prayers than we typically are. Like if you go and you buy a religious greeting card and it's got like God on it, God's going to be all warm and wonderful. It'll be fuchsia. There's nothing scary about that card. There are not greeting cards that say, hey, your grandma was destined to die on this day from the foundation of the world. This was her expiration date. It came. Sorry, not sorry for your loss. There are not things like that, right? Abraham understands God's sovereignty far better than we do, but he also understands his own unworthiness more than we do, especially before the majesty of God. But he is also much more confident that God wants to bless than most religious people are today. He is scared but familiar at the same time, and it's refreshing. Because you see, Abraham here, he's not vague. God's whatever I wish him to be. He's not ritualistic. Oh, I do these things and then God has to do that. It's real. Why is it real? Because God has revealed himself and he has trusted that that is who God is in God's self-revelation. This is a vision of God. Abraham didn't make up. A God who is holy and righteous and loving and full of grace at the exact same time. This, for Abraham, is the same God who has been coming to him through his word and by his grace for years now. Abraham knows God is a living God that is holy and righteous, yet God is loving at the exact same time. And that creates for Abraham this incredible prayer life that is neither too formal nor too vague, but it's personal and it is so real. And because it's real, his response to God in his extreme understanding becomes a very missional prayer. 
He starts to pray for other people, not for himself. He looks beyond himself and his circumstances because real prayer, real relationship with God has led him to this place. Now, we have a tendency to pray, if we pray, for our needs for the day and our strength and getting all those things met. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Jesus tells us we can pray for those things. But there's so much more to prayer. Abraham here takes his face-to-face relationship with God and starts to leverage it, not for his own needs, but for those around him. God says, verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom, that word outcry, it's the cries of victims. That's what that word means, victims of violent injustice. And so when God says there's an outcry, it means there are poor and marginalized being trampled to death. Sodom and Gomorrah is an urban city who does whatever feels good, whatever they want. And in so doing, saying, oh, no, you do whatever you want. That's the greatest thing. They're actually trampling people and hurting people in the process of doing this. A half a millennia later, God will bring his people out of slavery in Egypt for the Egyptians doing the exact same thing to the Israelites. Abraham knows exactly how wicked these cities are, just like we know how bad things are in our world today. But what does, God, what does he ask God to do? He asks God to spare them. That's what he asks God to do. And it's interesting here because this word spare, it actually translates as forgive. That's what it translates as. Why does Abraham do that? Now, if you know this story, some people will say, well, Abraham has a nephew named Lot who lives in the city of Sodom, and that's why he's praying this way. He just wants his family to be okay. But if you read the whole story, the text later on, Lot and his family, that's four people. That's all that it is. If he wanted to get Lot and his family out of Sodom, why not just ask for that? Why go through all the rigmarole of 50, 45, 40? Why why do all that? It'd be so much easier than going 50 to 10, just say, hey, can you get those four out of there? Abraham could have said, God, I agree with you. Those people are terrible. Smite them all. But just bring my uh, nephew and his family out, please. Could you do that? It doesn't seem all that complicated because you're agreeing with God, not challenging God. But what he asks for is so much more complex. And I think it's very compelling. He never mentions Lot, and he shows he cares for the whole city. Abraham essentially takes his life into his own hands, and he asks God to bless and forgive and pardon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this prayer is not a grocery list. It's not, God, give me this and give me that. Help me reach my goals. Give me peace. One person writes this. He is laying himself out in prayer for the good of the people around him, including the people who are doing evil. See, Abraham knows God is just no matter what. God is righteous, and he is holy, and he is just. And if God wipes out the cities, he is just in doing those things. But he still prays on behalf of those he certainly disagrees with which I think leads a question to us. You know, is that how we pray? Do we pray for those that we disagree with? Not that they would agree with us, but that they would come to know who Christ is, that Jesus would then change them. Because in the end, it doesn't matter if you're liberal, conservative, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. There are people out there I know that you don't like. There are people out there who are like, those people are the problem with the world. Guys, again, I'm not trying to be political, but after the last election, I'm just flabbergasted that life is not held in higher esteem in our country. I'm like, oh my goodness, and I think those people are the problem. But do I pray for them in a humble boldness that God would do a work? Because it doesn't matter if they agree with me on all these issues. In the end, what it matters is do they trust Christ with their life? It doesn't matter if I can get everybody in the world to agree and vote exactly the way I want to. If they don't trust Christ, what does it matter in the end? And that really is what Abraham's doing here. Do we pray for people in a humble boldness? And I think their answer is that we typically don't. 
But Abraham does. And I think there's a reason why Abraham prays this way. Why does Abraham pray like this? How can we be those who pray with this concentrated outward focus that comes from knowing God's goodness? Well, this goes back to what we talked about in week two. Glad you remember all of it. Okay, so in week two in this series, we talked about prayer is not. And I told you that we don't pray because we think God lacks some knowledge of an event. Oh, God, do you not see how this election is going, how people are voting on these things? God knows. God sees. We don't pray because God's a tyrant, and we think he has to be appeased in some way. We don't pray because we think God's a vending machine, like at the, at the Chinese restaurant in the Buddha Bell, and you're all money, money, money. We don't do that with God. We don't pray because we think more, we're more important to God than his own glory. The only way to pray like Abraham, like we talked about, is by having a deep theological understanding of the person of God. And this is why we talked about this for the last eight weeks to get to this point. It's why we study the scripture so we can know who God is in this person better because it will change the way that we pray. By knowing him, we'll want to pray more. And so Abraham, in his prayer, he focuses on the attributes of the God, the nature of who God has revealed himself to be. Abraham has had God's promise reiterated to him by God himself for years now. Part of that promise was that the entire earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, ultimately pointing to the person of Jesus and what he would do to rescue and save all of us. Abraham knows God loves this earth he created. He knows he wants to bless people because God's revealed that to him. He says in verse 25, far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. He's not asking the question. That's rhetorical. Abraham knows the answer. God knows the answer to that question. Of course God is a just God. No matter what happens in our world, God is a God of justice. That is sure. Abraham wants to get a reprieve for Sodom and Gomorrah, but the one thing he knows is that God's not going to give up his righteousness. God's not going to give up his holiness or his justice. He's a righteous God. So what hope can there be in that? Look at the world now. All the injustice, it still keeps happening. What hope can there be for a world unless there is a God of justice who someday will put everything right? What hope can there be? If there is no God of justice, there is no hope for the world. But Abraham also knows that God is a God of grace. In verses 18 and 19, before God talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, he reiterates his promise once again to Abraham that he has chosen Abraham, that he has chosen salvation to come through this family. Now, maybe when Abraham was first chosen, he thought, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. That's why God chose me. By the time you get to Genesis 18, all that has been just blown out of the water. Abraham is a total mess. He knows he's a total mess. He has run from God, tried to pimp out his wife twice. He's just, he's just a total nutcase. And I think right here, he knows this. He has let God down over and over. He has failed to believe in God and done some pretty dumb things. And God still comes to be in relationship with him. Abraham knows that God is a sparing God who forgives and pardons and loves, that he is a God of grace. How does he know? Because God has done that to Abraham. He understands it. So Abraham says this, I know you're a God of justice. I know that's never going to go away. You can't shrug that off. But I also know that you are a God of love and want to spare people. You love the undeserving. And so when Abraham talks with God, most people miss this. But this is a great theological exploration of God's goodness. Because Abraham doesn't say when he talks to God, oh, let your justice slide. He doesn't say, oh, set aside your righteousness this once. What he says is, you love your righteousness so much could you not, for the love of those righteous people, give a reprieve to the whole city? That's how he prays. 
because he has an understanding of who God is. God has revealed that to him. Now, if you might know this, sometimes the guilt of a few people get imputed or ascribed to an entire family. Maybe some kids do something, or maybe somebody's grandparents did something, or somebody's parents did something, and people are like, oh, you know that family. And like, just a couple people did this thing, and everybody kind of gets laid with that thing. They get castigated that way. Here, Abraham is doing the exact opposite. He says, if there are a few righteous people in that city, could you not take that righteousness and impute that or ascribe that to the many? Is it, is it possible, in spite of our bad record, you would love a righteous group of people in a city so much that for their sake, you would forgive everyone else? That way, you could be a righteous God, honoring the righteous, but at the same time, saving the undeserving. Isn't that possible? Abraham gets God to say yes to 10 people, 10 people in a gigantic couple of cities, and he will spare them. But then Abraham stops, and he goes home. I mean, he got God to 10. If you've never heard this story before, ancient readers would have been, why didn't he keep going? Why didn't he get to one, four, or, or one? Why, why did he stop right there? I, first time I read this, that's what I thought. Why did he stop at 10? That, that's weird. You know, well, part of it is you would think that, you know, if I could get to one, that, that'd be a great thing, but he never asked for one. You know why? Because by the time he gets to 10, he realizes there's not 10. And he realizes there's not even one. And that's what he realizes. He never says, oh, Lord, let me speak just once more. Will you save the whole city for the sake of one righteous person? Do you love your righteousness so much that that one person's righteousness can be imputed to the whole and undeserving people and they could all be saved? Because based on what has happened so far, you would expect God here to say yes. But Abraham never asked the question. And God goes down to the city and judges the city, and the city is lost. Because Abraham knows in the end there is not one truly righteous person in the city. You know it's not Lot if you read his story, and Abraham know, knows it's not him. No one fits that requirement of being truly righteous. I love this quote by Tim Keller, and I tell you it a lot. He says, if there is no God of justice, there is no hope for the world. But if there is a God of justice, what hope is there for any of us? Because we have all failed. We've all run from God. And almost 2,000 years later, it's like you see Abraham prays this prayer and it kind of leaves there in this spot is no one righteous. And almost 2,000 years later, what happens is someone did come who did live a righteous life. The only one who ever to walk that road. The only one who ever has. See, Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's essentially acting like a priest. He's standing in the gap. He's praying for them, stands in front of God. He makes intercession, but he can't pull it off because he's not righteous. He can't pull it off. Jesus, we are told, comes ultimately as our high priest, and he goes to the cross. As people were killing him, Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. See, Abraham risks his life going before God. Jesus gives his life in our stead for our sin as the only one who was ever righteous. Abraham goes before God. God, I'm representing these people. Don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at me. Jesus represents us in righteousness and takes the wrath of divine justice against injustice on himself. He pays the penalty for our sins. Do you know that we actually get to pray like Abraham? We get to say, Lord, would you save us and undeserving people for the sake of the one who was righteous? And what does God say? Of course. If it's Jesus, yes, yes. That is why we put our faith in Christ. That is not why we put our faith in people. It's why we put our faith in Christ as God has revealed himself to be. 
Genesis 18.23, it says that Abraham drew near to God. The word there is actually approached, and it's a legal word that refers to like an attorney going before a judge to plead a case. And this is what Abraham does. And he doesn't do that bad of a job, but he can't take it all the way home because he's not righteous. In the book of 1 John, we are told that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus stands before the bar of divine justice and represents all of us. See, God has an infallible case against our sin and our rebellion and how we treat one another and how we think about one another. But Jesus then says, yes, the wage of sin is death, but I have paid that wage for them. Spare them, Father, not despite your justice, but because of your justice. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 7, it says Jesus is our great high priest. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Guys, this is beautiful. And when you look at Abraham's prayer, it points us directly to the person of Christ and what he came to do. So how do we then begin to pray like Abraham? Well, I think we understand that God is holy and also loving, which means there is now the way that we, the undeserving, can be saved by God as he upholds his righteousness and his justice. So we pray like Abraham when we understand the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to give his life in our stead. He imputes, he ascribes his righteousness to us as a people, as our great high priest. And we get to live in righteousness. Yes, we have sinned, but we are also loved by God. And when we understand the gospel correctly, it creates in us a humility and a boldness like Abraham. But I think it's more so real for us because real prayer is always a response to what God has done. Abraham prays for this. He didn't get to see the fulfillment. We get to live after Christ came. We get to see the fulfillment of all that God was ultimately doing and leading towards. We get to pray a fuller prayer in Christ because we get to understand what God actually did. And I think sometimes you can tell a lot of people and their understanding of God by their confidence in their prayers. If you don't understand what the gospel is, the Bible is going to be one obscure, weird story after another. But if you understand the gospel, what you see is in every story and every promise and every poem, you see Jesus. Even this weird story here about Abraham, you know, 50, 45, 40, it's like, what does that even mean? When you see the gospel in its totality, you see exactly what is happening here and what God is leading Abraham towards. And it is beautiful. It really is. As we get to be a people who are not saved because of our own righteousness, we get to people who are saved because of Christ's righteousness given to us. As a matter of fact, I was, I was doing a wedding uh, this weekend, and, or this weekend, it is this weekend. Uh, I was doing a wedding on Friday, and I was talking to this guy after, after the wedding, and, and he starts talking to me. Like he was raised Irish Catholic, and his parents were very strict and staunch, and, and he just hated God, and he says, I'm now an agnostic because of all this. And I said, and I said, you understand, I said, what you're describing to me is religion. You're describing to me that you have to do all these things in order to make yourself acceptable to God so that he will love you, that your righteousness is based upon yourself. And he's like, yeah. And I go, that's not how it works. We would never be righteous before God. And so I got to talk to him about Jesus. And I got to think, man, I'm giving this message this weekend. I'm going to talk. You know, just, it was, it was kind of great. And, and the funny thing is, the people who are friends with him said, oh, yeah, he doesn't like God at all. By the end of this, he, he had hugged me. And, he went, and we might go to lunch this week so you can pray about that. Um, I don't want to give his name in case you know who he is. But anyway, and it wasn't just because he was drinking, okay? I'm telling you. <laughs> 
But we got to have this conversation, and it just led to me thinking of what we're talking about today. And him just getting a picture of what grace looks like is, is beautiful. And that's what we need to get, the understanding of grace. Because when we get it, it'll lead our prayers to be different. And so today, we're going to ask you guys if you want to take communion. Because communion is a reminder of the grace that God has given us. And you break that cracker and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a representation of Christ, the one who is righteous, that he gave his life. His body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And we get to step into a relationship with God because of Christ's imputed righteousness given to us. If you need prayer, if you're in a place this morning like this guy who was raised Irish Catholic with really uh, judgmental ideas and you want to understand who Christ is better, we have people who are willing to pray and talk with you. They're going to be in the lounge right across the way so you don't have to do it in the back of the room or anything like that. And you can just talk to them, ask some questions, ask them to pray with you. Maybe you are now just asking some questions about the goodness and the grace of God. Great, great. Have God continue to do that work in your heart as he moves you towards himself because he is good, because he is good. Uh, we have offering boxes next to every single door, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always just meant to be a response to what God has done and continues to do in our life because God gave so much to us. And I encourage you to grab the questions in the, in the prayer journals that are there. If you don't have one, if you do have one, maybe this week sit down and, and talk with those questions to your friends, your family, your gospel community, and start to go through those things and understand what it means that we get to be a righteous people before God because of what Jesus has done. That enables us to pray in a way that is full of hope and grace and life. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for ascribing to us a righteousness that we do not deserve, but yet you lovingly bestow upon us because of your Son. And so I ask that we would be those who surrender our lives to you and to trust you in all things that we would step out in this righteousness that we have been given, that there would be a boldness to our prayers like Abraham, but that boldness in understanding the ways that we have been saved would lead us then to start to pray for others around us, that they would come to know you, God, not that there aren't issues in our culture today that need to be talked about and, and taken head on, but in the end, we want people to know who you are first and foremost. Because the only way that we have been saved is by your righteousness given to us. Have an understanding of the good news of the gospel be central to how we speak and how we understand your grace. Teach us to be those who as we step out into relationship with you that the world would see your goodness because you have deemed to save us because of the one who was righteous. And so I ask that our faith will be placed solely in him that our understanding of our righteous place before you is only found in Christ and that we would be able to live in great joy and hope because our righteousness is not placed based upon what we do, but it's placed upon us because of your grace. So teach us to live real lives 
and real worship of you that would expand beyond ourselves. And we would become your hands and feet, your priests to this world as we speak and pray for those around us because of what you have first done for us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. As the curtains drop, just take a moment and I want you to think about what it means for Jesus to be the one that stands in our place as our advocate, as our great high priest, that our standing before God does not have to be based upon what we've done. That it gets to be based upon, as I said last week, what our Heavenly Father now says over us. And that will teach us to begin to live in a great freedom because our hope and our life is found in Him. So before you take communion, before you sing a song, just take a moment and just say, God, teach me what it means to understand that Jesus is my great high priest, that He is the one who is righteous, and that righteousness has now been given to me.